So, we have been on a series in Micah, um, for those of you who have been coming to church over the last few months, um, and we've just heard Micah 7, 8 to 20, the final verses of Micah. Um, so, basically, in this uh, section, Micah is uh, wrapping up this, this book, wrapping up these things we've heard. Um, and so, I just want to start off by looking at what we've heard so far. Um, obviously, it's been, I think, around a nine-week preaching series. Um, not everyone has necessarily been here every week. Um, for those who are visiting, maybe not at all. Um, so I just want to clarify where we are, where we've been so far. Um, so back in Micah 1, uh, we looked at the concept of Jesus being our only hope. Um, now Micah introduces the character of Jesus, Jesus obviously being the centre um, of our Christian faith. But for those people who are from coming from outside of the Christian faith that might be wondering who Jesus is. Well, Micah introduces Jesus as a saviour, as someone who's going to save uh, the people, in this case, the people of Israel. Um, and then it goes on to uh, talk about false leaders. Um, we learn about being aware of false leaders, people who try and come and lead us astray, uh, lead the people of Israel astray uh, with false and wrong things about God. After that, we learnt that actually this isn't something we need to worry about too much because God is going to be the one who rescues us. We heard about a rescue coming from Bethlehem. And those of us who know the Christmas story know that Bethlehem had something rather important in that story. Um, and then finally, we learned we were free for a purpose. This freedom we have, this uh, freedom that God is talking about all through the book of Micah, is not just a generic freedom to go and have fun and uh, everything's great and you don't need to do anything after that. It's freedom for a purpose. And actually, a purpose, a life of purpose, is really important to us um, once we obtain this freedom from God. So in this final section of Micah, um, we are looking at uh, returning home to God. We see this vision of a city um, and people are coming from all parts of the world to this city and that's because they're coming to dwell with God. It's not just a city like Manchester, although Manchester is a great city, um, that we want people to come to because we want them to come and be our friends and we want them to come and bring all their art and their culture and their work and their business. It's a city that people want to come to to be close to their creator, be close to God. But when I started thinking about returning home to God and talking to you all about returning home to God, I realised that the key thing isn't about returning home to God. Um, returning home to God is a great vision, but it hinges on one thing. Who is God? Returning home to God is a great little buzzword for me to put on the front of my slides or on the church's uh, podcast. But if we don't explain who God is, the phrase return home to God is meaningless. So actually, I realised that this section of Micah explains to us some key parts of God's character that are essential for us to know if we want to return home to him. If we're going to return home to God, we need to know who we're returning home to. Because home isn't really a home if it's with strangers. If you moved into a house with a bunch of strangers, that house isn't home. Home is with a God that you know, and a God that you care about, and a God that you want to be with. So we're going to look today at three points that explain God's character. And to help you remember them, they all begin with a D. Um, so we're going to look at how God defies our enemies, how God defends his people, and how God delights in mercy. There's also another D that comes partly through this book, which is in verse 13, where it says, The earth will become desolate. 
Now, desolate is not a word we hear every day. We don't tend to say, oh, my fridge is desolate this morning. Nothing to eat. No, desolate is something hard to imagine. Um, But I was also recalling a rather recent conversation we had in church where some people, for some reason, had not seen the movie The Matrix. Now, we're going to do a bit of a show of hands here. Put your hands up if you have seen the movie The Matrix. Ah, so there's still a few holdouts on us. Um, Well, The Matrix is a really good example here because The Matrix presents an idea of a truly desolate world. For those who haven't seen it, I'm going to spoil it for you because you've had long enough. Um, (laughs) Come on, what's the... Are they re-showing it somewhere? Oh, fantastic. That's amazing. Oh, well, there we go. Oh, everyone to Kathleen's on Tuesday. Uh, oh, everyone to Didsbury on Tuesday. Uh, oh, Didsbury's a competitor to Shorten. I don't, I don't know if I should be advertising it. We'll cut that bit from the podcast. Um, so, um, The Matrix. Well, I, I'm, I'll try not to spoil it too much. The Matrix presents a view of a desolate world in which humanity has been uh, almost wiped out and is hiding underground. And the Matrix is actually shot through with um, theological and philosophical imagery. Um, In the Matrix, the main character, Neo, is living in essentially a dream world. He believes everything is fine, everything is safe, everything, he's a, his life's a bit boring. He's a computer programmer in one of these big American cubicle farms. Um, That's not what I do, Uh, not quite. But uh, he uh, is living this kind of very generic life. but he has a secret life. He's like a computer hacker when people thought computer hacking was cool rather than just stealing data off Facebook. Um, And he lives this secret life and suddenly finds out that all these things he's believed as fantasy are actually real, that this world that he's seeing day to day is not actually the real world, and he's been tricked. He goes into this world that's been ruled by machines, um, and they're told that the only safe place for the humans in that day is a city, It's a city buried deep underground, and it's a city called Zion. Now, Zion there is taken from the Jewish belief of Zion as the uh, holy city of Jerusalem, and the city that people are going to return to and be safe with God. And so this desolate world that's shown in the Matrix, I think, is a bit of a better example. Uh, It's this truly dead world, but that's been hidden from people. People have had the um, wool pulled over their eyes. People have been tricked into thinking that the world around them is wonderful and perfect, whereas actually it's desolate. And so I want us to sit with that image, an image of a desolate world and sanctuary in Zion as we go to look through the rest of this chapter today. So our first point is defying our enemies. God defies our enemies. Look with me at verse 8. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. So in the beginning of this section, our enemies are gloating. We're saying, do not gloat over me, my enemy, but they are gloating. That's not a particularly pleasant image, is it? Our enemies are gloating over us. They're laughing at our misfortune. But we also see that the person saying this is not perfect. They're not saying, oh, I've done amazing things and everything's gone wrong for me. No, they're saying, I sit in darkness. I have sinned against the Lord. So this is someone who's confessing. They're talking about the wrongs that they've done. 
And their enemies are sort of gloating over them because their enemies are saying, look at you. You've done all these wrong things. And surely God's going to punish you for that. But also your enemies don't care for God either. Your enemies are saying, where is the Lord your God? In verse 10, she who said to me, where is the Lord your God? So the enemies are mocking your faith. They're mocking the things you've done wrong. They're mocking your own guilt over your sin. They're sort of playing both sides against each other. They're saying that you've done wrong against God, but also your God has abandoned you. But this is a picture then of redemption. Because this person doesn't say, I've sinned against the Lord and now that's it. That's the end for me. I'm dead, I'm buried, I'm gone. Game over. They say, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case. This is an odd image. Generally, if you are convicted of a crime or if you are uh, going to be convicted of a crime, sorry, accused of a crime, you're in a courtroom and you will face a judge. And generally you, or maybe an appointed legal associate, will plead your case. They'll say, this is why this person maybe does not deserve the punishment or did not do the crime in the first place. But in this case, the writer is saying, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case. This is a very unusual courtroom in which the judge is arguing for the defence. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. So the writer here acknowledges who God is. The writer here doesn't kick back and say, oh, I didn't do anything wrong. Oh, it's not that bad. It's not that serious. The writer says, I did wrong. I've done a wrong thing. I'm downtrodden, guilty. I'm in darkness because of it. And yet I know that God is going to plead my case for me. And God doesn't just plead the case of our protagonist here. God pleads the case in order to show our enemy the wrong they've done. Then my enemy will see it and will be covered with shame. What's our enemy seeing that covers them with shame? Are they seeing just how rubbish they are? Are we telling them how bad they've been? Are we saying, oh, you're not that good yourself, you know? Look at you, you're in a rubbish situation too, aren't you? No. We're not having to point out anything that's to do with them or even us. The enemy in verse 9 is seeing God's righteousness. They see God's righteousness. As God pleads our case, our enemies will see God's righteousness. They'll see that God is good and God is righteous and that will put them to shame. So they experience shame when they notice how good God is to us. But this is all kind of abstract, right? Do we have enemies these days? Back in the days of Israel, you could imagine their enemies were all these nations around them or bandits and robbers and things. If you walk down Chorlton High Street, do you see your enemy? Do you see someone who you're like, oh, I can't walk past them, I'll start a fight? You know? I mean, other than maybe a few disagreements between local butchers, I don't think Chorlton has modern enemies. Do we have enemies in the UK? Do people have enemies? Well, I think they do. There are youth, mainly, and adults who are involved in gang violence who actually can't go down some streets because their enemies are there waiting for them. And actually, what about enemies that are a little more subtle than just a direct enemy? What about the enemies of racism or uh, other intolerances? What about enemies of hatred for a certain class or group? 
What about people who feel they can't walk down a street in this country without having abuse hurled at them because of their ethnicity? They don't have a specific enemy, but in general, they will see society as their enemy. What about abroad? Do we have enemies abroad? Well, we worry about things like terrorism, don't we? We worry about what could happen if another nation state chooses to declare war. That sometimes seems a distant possibility, but sometimes if you read the news, it seems like it could be all too likely. So actually today we do have enemies. We can live in this safe world, the matrix pulled over our eyes, but we do still have enemies. What about the more subtle enemies? What about the systems that we work within? What about a person who has their benefits cut for no reason? Is the state their enemy? Well, no, not really. The state isn't opposed to them, but they're being downtrodden in the same way. They're being oppressed in the same way. They feel like they are sitting in darkness in the same way. And internally, do we have enemies? Do we have shame about something we did in the past? Regret for something we didn't do in the past? Guilt when we feel we haven't made amends with someone, where there is no forgiveness. I think we might convince ourselves otherwise, but our enemies really are all around us. But this passage isn't saying, be aware of your enemies and be afraid of them. It's not saying to cower under the weight of all these things. It's saying to know your enemies, know what they are, and expose them to God's righteousness. God's righteousness will crush our enemies underfoot. My eyes will see her downfall in verse 10. Even now she will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. God defies our enemies. Those things that plague us, external or internal, those things that worry us, that cause us fear and anxiety, God will crush and trample underfoot. And he does it not through strength of arms and power, He does it by exposing them to his righteousness. He is so good, so strong, that everything else just withers when it's exposed to his light. Your enemy says, where is the Lord your God? All you need to do is say right there. Expose them to God's righteousness. But a God who defies our enemies and then moves on to someone else or somewhere else, wouldn't necessarily be that good. It'd be like a, uh, some sort of saving force, an emergency service. The police come to your door, they help you out, they do the bare minimum, maybe, and then they're off to some other case because they're busy. And now you're left on your own again. God doesn't do that. The next thing God does after defying our enemies is defending his people. Look with me at verse 11. The day for building your walls will come. The day for extending your boundaries. In that day, people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, even from Egypt to the Euphrates and from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. So once God has defied our enemies, he builds a safe place for us. Now Micah's words here speak initially to the recreation of Jerusalem. A lot of Micah's warnings have been about this coming calamity to the nation of Israel where if we skip ahead in the Bible to the rest of the uh, Israel history, we see that they are taken into exile in Babylon. 
But eventually, that exile ends, and they return to Israel. They return to Jerusalem, and they begin to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The book Nehemiah specifically talks about this process of how the walls were rebuilt, how people returned home. But this isn't just a message for the people of BC Israel. This is a message for us too, because if we skip right ahead to the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we see a picture of a new Jerusalem, a new Zion, this sanctuary city. The new Jerusalem is described as an enormous city that actually descends from heaven down to earth. God is going to bring this city down to earth and live with us here on earth. But if we look at verse 13, we learn that the rest of the earth doesn't fare so well. The earth will become desolate because of its inhabitants as a result of their deeds. So again, this picture of a desolate world, empty. And it's not as a result of God wiping people out like he did in the flood in Noah. It's a result of people's deeds because of its inhabitants, the result of their deeds. So we have a split here. You've got one side, verse 12, people flocking from everywhere. Now, when it says Assyria, the cities of Egypt, if we looked at a map today, Assyria, Egypt, Euphrates, they're not that far apart. They're quite a small part of the world. When this was written, though, these were places that were as far apart as you could probably imagine. So Micah isn't saying from this small geographical area of the ancient Middle East. He's saying everywhere. People are going to come from everywhere to be with God. This city is going to get built. God is going to build it and people are going to come from everywhere. And this is an example of God defending his people. We've seen his enemies are defiled. We've seen this desolate land and people are going to come from everywhere to be with God. Now, again, let's try and imagine that today. Do we see people fleeing desolate places for protection? I think we do. Since 2014, there's been an enormous migrant crisis across Europe because of conflict in the Middle East. Millions of people have left Syria and Iraq and surrounding countries for protection. Coming to Europe, we've seen these devastating images of people trying to cross the sea and sometimes, often, not making it. People from North Africa trying to cross into Italy. We've seen this caravan of migrants moving up through Central America to be met with a hostile reception at the US border. People being put into camps held in inhumane conditions in countries we thought were beyond that. We see this today. Let's not pretend this is some imaginary world, some history. We see this today. There are refugees. There are refugees amongst us here in Manchester. What are we doing to welcome them in to a home with God? What are we doing to defend them? And it's not just refugees coming from distant countries I want us to think about. There are people who are chased out of their homes, chased out by broken relationships, chased out by addiction, chased out by greed, hatred, desire for revenge, lack of forgiveness. People who end up living on the streets outside this bar. 
There are people who need a home. And what God is saying here is that those people will be given a home. But I think what God's also saying is that we have a challenge to give those people a home. Can we welcome people in? Can we be this sanctuary, this Zion? Could your living room, could your kitchen be Zion for somebody? A place of refuge, a place of sanctuary, a place of rest, a place where they know that God cares for them and God defends them and God cares for them and loves them. I said cares twice, but it's so important. (laughs) I'm just repeating myself. In Micah 1, Greg talked to us about a shepherd who gathers. David, the king, was known as the shepherd king. Now, a shepherd is a weird and like linked to a king. Shepherds and kings don't often share the same table. Jesus told a parable of the good shepherd, a shepherd who went out after his one missing sheep, as any good shepherd would do. Other than the fact that someone pointed out to me that that parable is ridiculous because no good shepherd would leave 99 sheep to go after one that went missing. They would stay with the ones that they already had and let the other one to its fate. So Jesus actually tells a parable of a very unusual, very forthright shepherd who goes out and fetches his other sheep anyway, who goes out into risk and danger to fetch one missing sheep. We've looked through Micah at how David's line is going to bear another king. And that king is Jesus. So Jesus is of the line of the shepherd king. A shepherd king who's going to gather. Verse 14, shepherd your people with your staff. The flock of your inheritance which lives by itself in a forest. So all this comes together to say that God is going to gather people to him. And I think as part of that, we should be gathering too. We should be gathering people here in Manchester. There aren't very big walls to this pub, but it can be a place of refuge. But I acknowledge that that can be difficult. If I look outside these windows some days and you see people on the street, I can think I don't want them to come in here. I don't want them to come in here and be with us because they might be different. They might be awkward to talk to. They might say things that I disagree with and I don't know how to deal with. They might do things that I'd be uncomfortable with. They might live their lives in a way that is not palatable to me, not like what I'm used to. And so on our own, I don't think we truly can be these people of refuge and sanctuary. I think we need to understand one more thing about God in order to bring people inside the walls, in order to gather people And that's that God delights in mercy. Mercy is another of these Christian terms we throw around quite a lot. Mercy, ask for mercy, pray for mercy. Mercy is not really used outside of the Christian church, except that silly game kids play on playgrounds. Don't know if anyone ever played it, it hurts. Um, But mercy, what does mercy mean? Mercy is linked to justice. You can't have mercy without justice. Sadly, you can't have justice without mercy. We read in the Bible that God is a just God. He creates laws. He creates rules for people to follow. Um, This week at our missional community, for those who were there, we looked at the Ten Commandments, the sort of canonical set of God's laws, the rules that are passed down through generations and, like it or not, inform the laws of this country and many other Western nations. 
Now, the Ten Commandments are one set of God's law, but God's law goes way beyond just Ten Commandments. It expands to all areas of how people should conduct themselves in civic um, and personal life. Um, And so God is a God of law, and law is linked to justice. A just God would make sure people follow the law, and a just God has to punish those who fail to follow the law. And we read through this in the Bible that God is a God of justice and God does keep the law. But God provides ways for people to absolve themselves of their sins. In Israel, people were told to sacrifice animals to pay for their sins. But this was a constant process. Some of the books of the Bible describe this constant flow of animals into the temple to be sacrificed because people were just sinning so much, so frequently. And so God set something else up. God set up a way that sin can be pardoned. Read with me verse 18. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. There's a problem here though. Because if you show mercy by simply saying, oh, you did that crime, you know what? Don't worry about it. Just, just go on. Don't do it again, but just on your way. And then you commit the crime again. And God says, oh, I wish you hadn't done that, but well, I guess keep, keep on going. Keep on. You do you. Hashtag YOLO. I don't think that would be a just God anymore. That would be a lame God. That would be a corrupt justice system. And we see that in some parts of the world where people who have wealth, means and power can get away with what they want to do against the laws of that country because we say that system is corrupt, it's wrong. We know those systems when we see them. We see a system that is not just, and we're not fooled. In that case, we don't have the wall pulled over our eyes. We know, we know it's wrong and we know it's unjust. But you know what? If we were there and we had that wealth and means and power, would we not be tempted to abuse the system ourselves? Get away with it? So God has to show mercy in a way that does not remove his justice. A good God will be a just God. So how can that be a merciful God? Well, these links in Micah have all pointed towards the character of Jesus Verse 19 says, You will have compassion on us. Tread our sins underfoot. Hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as he pledged on oath to our fathers. Jesus is the answer to all the promises that God has ever made in the Bible. When Jesus came, he said he has not come to replace the law, but to fulfill it. We spoke this week again at our mission community that fulfill a law is a strange statement. By following the laws and driving at the speed limit on my way here today, I did not fulfill that law. I cannot now drive home at whatever speed I want because I fulfilled it on the way here. The law still applies. The law will continue to apply for the rest of probably my days driving a car. That law is not fulfilled. It is still present. It is still there. It is just followed. So we thought Jesus to fulfill a law must mean that the law is leading somewhere. God's law is not just this set of rules that is static and permanent for all time. 
but is part of God's plan, God's story. The Bible is a story taking people from fall through to redemption and home with God. Jesus is the final part of that story. Jesus came and didn't sin. He came and taught the ways of God to people. He explained the law to those whose job it was to follow and interpret it and who were doing it wrong. And then Jesus went to a cross. Jesus died. The one perfect person who was not under punishment of the law took punishment. But if that was the end of the story, then we'd all be guilty of a greater sin. We'd all be guilty of causing the death of the Son of God. And what kind of punishment would we be under then? But Jesus did not stay dead. He did not stay in that ground. He rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, what's one of the first things he did? He explained the law, the books of the prophets and the law to his disciples. He met them on a road where they were talking and he talked them through the scriptures. He showed them how everything in the scriptures pointed to him. So he knew the law. The law was why he was there, why he had sacrificed himself. And in this, God delights to show mercy. God pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. So the story here is one of forgiveness. That's what God's mercy is. It's forgiveness for the sins we've done, for these sins that weighed us down. We talked about our internal enemies. One of those enemies surely is sin itself. And God defies our enemies and he defies the enemy of our sin by forgiving it. Even still, I don't think this would be enough on its own. Because we can know that we're forgiven. We can know that Jesus has died for our sins. But do we not still feel them? Are we not still aware of them? Those things that we've done, that we know were wrong? I spoke with Stephen, who's been uh, a attendant, attendee of our church for uh, oh, going on almost a year now. Stephen is currently serving parole. And... I asked him what parole was like because I think that parole is kind of what we sometimes feel like when we know that God has forgiven our sins. We say, we've been let off the punishment but that sin is still there. We still know we did wrong. We still feel it. Sometimes people say that when they, become, they get to know God, as they get to know God more, they feel their sins more. So you feel more guilty, more pressured, more weighed down by the weight of that sin. We feel like we're on parole. We've been let off the main punishment, but don't you put a foot wrong. So I talked to Stephen and he's given me permission to share what we talked about. Um, He said that parole is a state in which your life is not your own. Your life is controlled by the state, the government, the prison service, your parole officer. And in that system, the rules have changed. No longer do you have to break a law of the country to be sent to prison, but simply a condition of your parole. You may miss a meeting, you may put a foot wrong somehow, 
and you can be sent back to prison without notice. So he even told me that you wake up each day just worried that maybe the day, today's the day when the police will come and take you and you'll go back to prison. Now obviously parole is potentially meant to be better than prison. But I think a life of living in fear doesn't sound particularly helpful. Stephen said it is pressure. It's, it weighs on you. And that's why people end up reoffending. It's a system that doesn't work because your sin, your crime is held against you continually. And you're reminded of that constantly. That doesn't make you less likely to do it again. It makes you more likely to do it again. God doesn't put us on parole. There is no system where God is saying, I've forgiven this one, but next time you're in trouble. Verse 19 says, you will tread our sins underfoot. This is what happened in the early part of this chapter to our enemies, right? Our enemies were trampled underfoot. Our sins are tread underfoot. This same idea of God stamping down, removing things. But these go further. Our iniquities are hurled into the depths of the sea. Iniquities, that's another word we don't use very often. But iniquity is mentioned in Psalm 32. David says, I confess my sins to you and you do not remember my iniquities. It's a true forgive and forget. God forgives and forgets, genuinely. What does this mean? Why is this important to us? It's important for two reasons. Firstly, when you think that your sins may be too great for Jesus to bear, they are not. Jesus has borne them already. They are gone. They're not being held over you. No one's watching to see if you reoffend. And secondly, if you've experienced mercy like this, does that not make it so much easier to bring these people in who are not like us, who make us uncomfortable, who we find difficult, because shouldn't we be merciful to them? Whether they've done wrong, whether they've done something that we wouldn't agree with, whether they've done something that we say is not biblical, does that matter? God shows mercy to those people. God shows mercy to all of those people. He delights to show mercy. He forgives and forgets. Do we forgive and forget? Or do we hold grudges? Do we want revenge? Do we think some people just deserve to suffer for what they've done? Because God knows they do, but he saves them anyway. Do we have mercy? Now maybe we don't. Maybe we know that we're not merciful. And what I'm doing here is just piling another spoonful of guilt on top of an already guilty conscience. I don't want to do that. Because the way to get more merciful, to become more merciful, to forgive easier, to desire revenge less, is not to think really hard, to scrunch up your face and just bear it. It's not like going and doing a set of press-ups. I should do more of those, but it's not like that. It's not something you try really hard and work really hard at and be really holy and be really good. It's simply looking at God more. If you see God's mercy, you'll reflect that back. If you know God, you will know what his mercy is like and you'll want to show it to other people. 
So if today you feel that maybe you are not merciful, maybe you would like to be more merciful, the answer is to look at God's mercy more. That means to read the Bible, read the story that tells you that God is merciful. It means to pray to God for mercy for yourself and the ability to give that out to other people. And this key thing about reminding people isn't something new. It's not a system that we put in place in the church because, oh, if we don't keep telling people, they won't come back anymore. They'll be, it'll be like someone who's been to a counsellor and they're fixed and they leave and the counsellor now has no money. Right? We're not trying to keep people on a drip to make sure they're always coming back to church. The fact is we need reminding constantly of the goodness of God and what he's done for us. And Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that we needed a constant reminder of his goodness to us. We talked before about how Jesus went to a cross. Well, the night before he did that, he met with his disciples for a meal. At this meal, he took bread and wine and told them to eat the bread and drink the wine as a memory of him and what he was about to do for them. And we do this to this day. He broke the bread and said, this is my body that is broken for you. And he took the wine and said, this is my blood that is shed for you. Doing this in remembrance of Jesus is not the way that you gain forgiveness. You gain forgiveness because of what he did immediately after this meal. But doing this is one of these many ways that we remember him. I said before that Jesus was the end of the story. Well, you may wonder why the story seemed to end 2,000 years ago and doesn't seem to have ended at all. The answer is that this is still the end. The story is still ending. Our church is a member of a group called Acts 29, the reference being that there isn't a 29th book of Acts. There's only 28. We are part of the continuation of the ending of this story. We're part of a people who are waiting for Jesus to return, to finish the end. People who are waiting for this city, Zion, to come down from heaven where we can be defended by God, where we can be with him. We're waiting for our enemies to be trodden underfoot. And so we're going to drink this wine, eat the bread, when Michael gets up to play, come up, dip the bread in the wine and eat and remember Jesus. And maybe today you don't feel that you know Jesus. If that's the case, then this meal is not yet for you. You can't be reminded of what you don't know. But I would urge you today, if this isn't something you've done before, but this character of Jesus someone who is merciful, someone who frees you from your iniquities, who removes this guilt from above your head, is appealing, then come, join. Make this the first time that you remember him until he comes again.
God is going to defy our enemies. That means we need to learn who our enemies are, external and internal, and bring them to God. Expose them to his righteousness. God defends his people. So we need to learn about who God is. Who is this God that we have a home with? And who can we bring? Which people who are lost in this desolate world can we bring to be at home with us with God? And God delights in mercy. So ask Jesus for mercy and then go and be merciful to others. Let's pray.